This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Welcome to Episode 6 of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today's episode asks, Love conquers all, or does it? What can we do for our relationships? And my guest today is Eric Lyleson, psychologist, author, and shall I say trainer? Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eric, you have a master's in psychology and you've been in private practice for about 30 years, I believe. Yeah, more than that now. I actually opened up my practice in 1988 in DY. Wow. So DY, New South Wales, Australia. And you've trained with many of the finest therapists in the world and also conduct your own professional development courses on marriage counselling. So you are a marriage expert. Well, I would, I guess so. I've been counselling couples for that long. Also before that, I did a lot of work with families and a little bit with couples in my kind of postgraduate training and experience I did. And of course, I've, you know, I am married and, uh, that's probably the what makes you a marriage expert more than anything, or you know, uh, managing to stay happily married. <laughs> Absolutely, and with children. And with children, yes. Eric, you've written a couple of books. Uh, would you like to tell us a little about those, please, and where we can find them? Well, my first book is called Reflections from Down Under, Getting Lost and Finding Yourself in Nature. Uh, unfortunately, that book's no longer available unless you purchase it through me. Although I do tend to give away a free copy of that when you buy my other book, which is called e- Essential Wholeness, uh, Integral Psychotherapy, Spiritual Awakening, and the Enneagram is the subtitle. And uh, that book, you can get it on most uh, internet sites, uh, you know, Amazon or Booktopia or anywhere really online. Generally, they, you can get that. Or you can come and get a signed copy from me if you like. Fantastic. So we'll give those details a bit later of your website as well. So what makes you still interested in relationships and helping couples? Well, look, I think that there's, you know, two things that are really important for human beings and seem to be important for most people, not all, but most. And that is one, to kind of really find out who you are in this life and, you know, what really brings you joy and satisfaction and meaning for yourself. And then I think the other thing is to share that, to share who you are and what you're interested in love and what you're passionate about with another human being. And of course, one of those really meaningful things you might want to share with someone is raising a family, raising kids and having a family is certainly something that most people really find great meaning in. However, nowadays, it seems to be harder and harder for people to keep their marriages together for at least long enough for their kids to grow up. You know, I more and more see couples, you know, who, uh, you know, they're getting divorced after the birth of the first child, you know, or, you know, within the first three years of their first child being born, let alone, you know, further on down the track. So I think what's what most people want, you know, I think most people say, oh, I I don't want to get married to have kids and then get divorced. But it is a difficult thing, it would appear, to have a good enough marriage to feel satisfied and happy and like you're not compromising yourself in order to be in the marriage. So what I think a lot of people don't understand that I try to pass on to them is that as wonderful and meaningful and enriching a good marriage and family life can be, it is hard work. (laughs) It's 
it's kind of like writing a novel or something, you know, <laughs> a lot of people like to write a novel, you know, and, you know, but anybody who's tried to sit down and even write a short story realizes, you know, how much research and time and effort and rewriting and everything it takes to write a novel. Well, I think, you know, you know, having a good marriage is probably harder than writing a novel. Definitely. Because one, writing a novel, you have nobody else you have to influence other than your readership if you get one. Whereas, um, uh, you know, in marriage, you're dealing with this other human being who is quite often, uh, you know, of a different gender, not always, uh, comes from a different family culture and often even a different ethnic culture. Sometimes you're of different ages. So there can be all these just innate differences, uh, different personality types, uh, you know, and how, uh, you know, perfectionist is going to, you know, have a harder time understanding a kind of a entertainer, let's say, type personality type, you know, and, you know, not going to see eye to eye. So to be able to bridge these gaps, gaps of differences is, you know, really difficult. But probably the most difficult thing of all is that it would appear, and it's been my experience up to many years of doing this, the main thing that gets in the way of people being really close and loving and having a lasting relationship are their own wounds and traumas and kind of uh, limiting beliefs that they've inherited from their ancestors and their family of origin. And so, uh, it, in a way, marriage, for it to really last, requires us to wake up out of our kind of a trance of conditioning to really be in the present and really be able to be flexible in discovering what it means to be intimate, what it means to be loving, what it means to cooperate, and what it means to ha- kind of truly understand and accept another human being just the way they are. Uh, exactly. And that takes so much consciousness, so much awareness. And who's trained for that? Nobody. <laughs> in fact, nobody really talks about that. Uh, it, well, up until maybe now, I think um, I see my daughter and her friends, you know, she's uh, in her mid-20s and, you know, there's some of her friends that are really learning to have conscious relationships. One of the terms I really like that I think they've kind of coined or this kind of younger generation has coined is this idea of holding space for the other person. Wow. You know, so this idea of someone's upset, uh confused, having a hard time, rather than trying to work it all out, talking things back and forth and trying to, you know, kind of work things out on a social level. There's a kind of recognition that there's times when you're upset and disturbed and there's something coming up to be healed. Yep. And and that the most important thing that you can do is be non-reactive when your partner has an issue like this coming up. And I really like this term hold space for them to verbalize this, to kind of get in touch with their emotions, to cry or, you know, to uh, uh, feel their fear and shake with, you know, kind of the the re-experiencing of trauma or whatever it might be. And this is where there's, you know, real hope. Yes. (laughs) For um, an evolution of, uh, in the relationship. That's really exciting to hear a possible trend. You know, it used to be that we would hear people ask or hope to ask, how was your day, honey? And to reflect back, oh, so you had a hard day. And I guess hear and reflect, reflective hearing and and hold the space in that way. But these days, couples don't seem to take the time to do that much. Yeah. And uh, we live in a 
very busy world. You know, often the, when you ask someone the question, you know, how are you? You know, how are you feeling? And it, it, often the response is, oh, keeping busy. Yeah. <laughs> As yep. if that was an emotional state. Exactly. But it's actually, it's actually the state of you know, busyness that keeps people from feeling. And, of course, you can only actually be as intimate with another human being as you are intimate with yourself. Yeah. You can only really connect as deeply with another human being as you are connected to yourself. And uh, if you don't get in touch with the level of emotion, you're usually not going to be able to go deeper than the level of emotion and to really be, you know, deeply present and in a loving, uh, energetic embrace. Completely agree. And I think so many people are never going to be able to do that on their own without the help of a therapist. It would appear that way. You know, um, there are some people, you know, probably born into uh, high functioning families. that <laughs> uh, Their parents, have, you know, um, passed some of that on probably because they had therapy. Yes. Somewhere in their life and, and had teachers like this, you know, someone to kind of guide them to be more in tune, you know. Sometimes meditators, you know, can do this without having a therapy because there's, a, depending on the type of meditation they've studied, but, you know, really good meditation will help you learn to open up to all the different sort of states of mind and emotion that you might need to be mindful of and communicate about if you're going to have a high-functioning relationship. That's true, and perhaps in to some extent reading self-help books written by experts, people who are correctly trained like psychologists could help people become more connected with themselves. It can help. I, I don't, generally, I don't think that's enough. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of people have read the book. Yes. But it's another thing to take theory and put it into practice. Yes. And there's like a, you know, there's a big tradition like in Buddhism, when I, I've, done, I've studied a lot of Buddhists with some Buddhist masters, and there's this idea of the oral transmission or the, you know, kind of energetic transmission. There's something about being with somebody not only knows things intellectually, but knows things experientially, Mm. knows really how to have an open heart and an open mind and to really um, have a deep sense of unconditional, radical compassion, you know, sort of thing. And when you are with someone like that, you know, they open up. They, well, the potential is for them to kind of touch you energetically in a way that opens up these ways of being. That if you're just hanging around people at a social level and everybody is kind of just keeping things at a nice surface level, you, you, you can not even know those realms exist. I remember when um, I was very fortunate because when I was like 20, uh, maybe not even 19 still, I met a brief relationship with this woman, Claudine, who was, I thought she was all old and mature. <laughs> she had a, she was a single mom. She was an artist. She was French and uh, she was 25 and she had been through a lot in her life and was really quite emotionally intelligent. And for some reason, <laughs> she wanted to have a little brief affair with me, but her emotional openness and presence really, you know, struck me, just struck a chord in me. And at some point, I remember when I was with her and I was just thinking how open she was and how closed I felt. Like like her emotional kind of sexual, intimate way of experiencing herself, I I sort of would say like nine out of ten. And if I was to assess myself, I was like 
two out of ten in terms of this <laughs> richness and fullness of experience. And I thought I had like a Harry Met Sally moment. I said, like, I want what she's having. How do I have that? <laughs> how, how, how do you get from where I am to that? And that's probably actually the thing that, you know, um, guided me into, you know, into my own therapy. It was just, you know, a few months after that, that um, actually somebody gave me my first therapy book uh, to read. And I thought, oh, this is really good. I want to, how do I, where do I find someone who does this kind of therapy? And then I ended up moving into a commune uh, up in the Santa Cruz mountains. And we had this, this couple came to visit the commune and said, oh, we're going to be staying out in the forest for uh, a month and a half on our, you know, kind of summer holidays. Lori's mom, one of the people, was one of the owners of the land. And they said, yeah, but we're therapists from Berkeley. And we do this type of therapy. And, you know, we'd like to give you a presentation, you know, about what we do. (laughs) And so I ended up, my first therapy experience was going out, walking down this path into a redwood forest and meeting with um, Richard at that point and him doing this kind of somatic psychotherapy work with me that was very powerful and opened me up to exactly what I want, you know, I thought Claudine had. Oh, how fantastic. Uh, Very blessed, yeah, very lucky. Well, so are people who then come to consult you because you hold the space for them in the same kind of way and allow them to get in touch with themselves. And I, too, hear it from people Men in particular say, you know, my wife wants me to open up to her and how do I do that? As you say, you know, how when you find yourself closed, how do you open, how do you learn how to do that? It's such a sort of synergistic experience, isn't it? It's like in group meditation where you find it much easier usually to meditate at a, I guess, higher frequency than because of the synergy, the raising of consciousness, the energy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a field, there's an energetic field an energetic, emotional field. And, of course, everybody can feel this, right? You know, I think everybody's, like, going to a dinner party at, you know, friend's house, and they get there and think, oh, the vibes aren't very good tonight. <laughs> you know, there's something going on. And then you talk to your, you know, friend a couple of days later, says, oh, yeah, my husband and I, we're having a fight. You know, we just had to put it aside for the party. But, you know, we're still... You know, we had to, we put on our best face and we were trying to be, but yeah, you, you know, I could imagine the vibes weren't very good. You know, <laughs> yes. um, Catherine, my wife and I, we, we kind of refer to that when there's something not right is that there's a disturbance in the field. You know? Oh, like, yes. Like, you know, you go, Catherine, you're all right. And she's like, yeah, fine. She's like, oh, well, I, I feel like there's a disturbance in the field. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so, yeah, on one level, it's like everything is okay. You know, like I'm yeah. not dying or I'm not sick or I'm not, you know, I don't want to kill you or anything. But <laughs> but I'm not like as open. I'm not as receptive. I'm not as, you know, available for intimacy or or maybe even just fun, you know, because yeah. um, there's something that's disturbing me or there's something between us that hasn't been spoken and acknowledged that just needs to be acknowledged quite often. And calling that out, you know, where one person in the relationship can call out something like that, that's a really major life skill, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the things that I, you know, when I'm working with couples, you know, I ask them if they can give their partner permission to do that. You know, permission, you know, just say, can you give your partner permission if they notice 
that you're going into some kind of unconscious pattern or you're shutting down in some ways or you're you seem to be taking out your something on them or or you're distracted and distant or something you know can they just you know respectfully and gently just say hey hey darling um what's going on you know and it seems like when you spoke to me just a couple minutes ago you seem to be a bit aggressive or something or you seem a bit withdrawn or whatever is that right not like i think i you know you're you're holding a grudge against me, aren't you? You know, it's not like it's not like uh, accusing something. It's like you know, putting out a feeler for that, and to have permission to do that check-in. I think is very important. I agree, and I don't think it's possible for us to remember to do these things unless we have even a weekly sort of business meeting. I call them for relationships where the couples do these these processes consciously, remind themselves that it takes work, as you say, and these are processes and strategies that need to be implemented? Well, if you want to have a yeah, open, loving, you know, flowing relationship as much as possible, I, I agree. One of the things I, you know, certainly try to suggest or, you know, encourage for couples to do is to uh, hug till at least until they can feel themselves relaxing and you can feel your partner relaxing because you can be close enough to notice whether they're closed and kind of uptight and shut down or whether they're able to melt, you know, into your presence a little bit and you're able to melt into their presence. You can't fake that. No, exactly. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just say the right words and have a smile on your face, and, you know, and say, I'm happy, everything's good. Because <laughs> you can do that and still not really be energetically, emotionally sort of uh, open and and open for a connection. Whereas if it's just, you know, we try to, you know, like before I get out of bed, I try to have that type of hug, you know, until we get, you know, before we get out of bed in the morning and certainly, you know, maybe when I get home from work or before I go to sleep at night, I want to make sure at least we touch in and see, are we, are we good? You know, uh, and it, there's a lot more can be experienced without words to notice, well, what's going on in the field, what's going on in the, the relational field. And if there's, of course, there is something, then they go, yeah, well, how do we talk about that? And what's really good with that kind of context is the reason we talk about stuff isn't to try to criticize or to, you know, tell somebody they're doing something wrong or make them bad. It's because we want to have a loving connection. Yeah. What a and great ritual. Yeah. And then it's a, there's a positive intent. We're just there to clear away any obstacles there are for us to treat one another in a peaceful, loving, joyful way. That's and accepting that, and then to accept that if you have a good relationship, it will bring to the surface everything that gets in the way of that love flowing freely. So, oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, so yeah. every trauma, every relationship, you know, breakdown, uh, anything that, you know, has caused us to, you know, armor ourselves against feeling emotions or actually feeling love will come to the surface. Yes, that great phrase, before love comes all that is not of love. Yeah, that's right. And the thing is, the more loving you are and open, the more it will peel back the layers to reveal the other things that are not love, the other, the mm. fears, the hurts, the resentments that most of us have gathered up quite a few of those <laughs> from a young age. Yes. 
some of us even maybe when we were in our mother's wombs, if they were, yeah, you know, mothers were in a stressful, you know, environment or something. And surely, so, yeah, if people knew that that relationships managed well and intimacy that's real and true like this, it is the p- most powerful healing forum in our lives, and for us to grow and develop and transform and evolve and be happier and more deeply satisfied. I mean, wouldn't mm-hmm. wouldn't they do this work? Well, it's kind of a two-edged sword. (laughs) It is. Because kind of once you embark on that, there's no turning back. You can't go from living in a sort of a pleasant ego land, like they call Mm. it, you know, where, you know, you're good at watching TV together and, um, you know, shopping or something together. (laughs) You know, but once you've embarked on wanting to really... um, see how deeply you can love one another, not just for your own sake, but of course, if you have children, mm. for your children's sake, you know, because there's probably nothing that helps children feel more secure than mom and dad who are really in love and, and work through their misunderstandings and conflicts and create a real sense that uh, everything is accepted and, you know, all feelings and all challenges and all difficulties and problems are all part of life and yeah. we're all here to support one another in, uh, you know, dealing with those challenges and working through. But it, I guess the dark side of that is it's work. Yes, and it's pain. <laughs> you know? yeah, it's, it's facing pain. Yeah, um, and, and yeah. to that point about children, of course, to do that for the children, to provide that security, you're also providing the lessons, the learning, the almost unconscious learning is just absorbed by the child to then empower them to have meaningful, intimate relations. Yeah, that's right. Whatever work we do in liberating ourselves and uh, becoming more loving or more peaceful or more in tune, um, that immediately gets passed into the family field. It's part of the field of energy and information, the quantum field, you might say, that um, the, the kids are growing up in, and they that's just their reality. It's not even necessarily... Um, something that they have to kind of, I mean, it partly it's role model too, and that helps, but it's it's almost deeper than that. It's just the sort of a quality of consciousness that your yeah. children do and then just be growing up in that type of awareness. So and what, my experience is that even as, that my kids are all grown up now and left home. When I go through some healing and evolution myself, I see it popping up in them and they're, you know, even though I'm not I don't know. I hardly, you know, I don't see them necessarily that often. They're like going through very similar things in their relationships and their lives, and they're like operating at that level of consciousness. I think I had to work so hard to get to that, and you just get to have it. Wow. <laughs> but then, you know, like my, you know, talking to my daughter, she's really having these kind of conversations with her partner, you know, and they're just pretty early in on their relationship, but they're they're right in it already. It's so inspiring. And I think if we can start relationships in that way, whatever our age is, it's more likely, I guess, that we might stay conscious. Yeah. Well, once you've woken up to a certain level, to go back is just, you know, to try to not know what you know. Yes. (laughs) Or not take responsibility for what you know you're responsible for. The suffering is like exponentially more. Yes. You know, there is a kind of the old saying, there is uh, ignorance is bliss, mm. but you can't go back to ignoring reality in the kind of old ignorance you've had once you've awakened. True. To do that, you kind of trying to put yourself back to sleep. It's like the universe is going, 
now you've already learned this lesson. You don't have to go through this again. Now, you know, there's a little, you know, kind of smack in the face, kind of, <laughs> you know, like, wake up, what are you doing? You know, man, you know, <laughs> you know better than this. You know, it's kind of like if you make a, a vow to yourself and, and then you break that vow, you know, you, you, personal integrity will not allow you to do that without paying the price. It's just your conscience, you know, mm. kind of a, saying, hey, you know, you know better than this. Come on, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) So the big question, and I think we've been talking around it, does love conquer all? What's your opinion? Well, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) But look, I think think Buddhism says it really well, right? There's two, there's the masculine and feminine. There's loving, you know, loving compassion, and there's wisdom. And we could say uh, wisdom is uh, just an acknowledgement, really, of the truth. Mm. of the way things are and the way, you know, actually just the way nature operates. And then love is really the recognition that we're all one anyway. Mm. There's no separation, you know. So when, you you know, any experience of real love is an experience of all boundaries in a way between me and the other disappear, whether I'm just, you know, basking in the love of a beautiful rainforest and I'm just feeling at one with, you know, nature. And yeah. there's this, this love of love, being in love, feeling love. And of course, same thing with, you know, in marriage or this, you know, I realize what I do to you, my partner is what I do to myself. Mm. I, and what I do to myself, I'm doing to you too. Yep. You know, if I'm shutting down and being, I'm beating myself up with, you know, my inner, you know, critic or something, you will feel me doing that. Mm. Now, you may not take it on, may not take it personally, but, you know, if you're open to one another, we'll feel like, and go, honey, are you okay? Like, you know, like, oh, what's going on in there? It doesn't, whatever just doesn't feel good, you know? And that's where love will, you know, leads us to, you know, idea of compassion. It's also being able to feel one another's pain. And of course, the amount, pain isn't the problem. It's like you were saying earlier, it's kind of the starting point. Mm. In fact, in, in Buddhism, they, they say, you know, the first noble truth is in life there is pain. Yes. <laughs> Deal with it or you will really suffer, yeah. you know, more. And in fact, the more you resist pain, the more you suffer. Mm-hmm. So if you have like five units of pain and you have five units of resistance to pain, you get 25 units. It's like exponentially get 25 units of suffering. Oh. You know, so what, of course, whereas if you have no resistance to pain, it's like the same thing happens if we're really emotionally in pain mm. and we give up all resistance to that and we have just give in and have a big cry. And especially, if we, you know, let's say our sweetheart is holding us in their arms and we have a big cry and we just let it all go. You just can sob your guts out and your yep. heart, you just re- release the pain from around your heart and your guts and you just go, oh, it's just such a, you know, you, you fight it. You know, most people fight that, you know, yes. for, you know, hours or days or something. You finally give in to it. You go, oh, and you know, why did I fight that? It was so good. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess once you've experienced that, it's the proof. And then, as you say, you don't forget. Well, you can forget, but you can't completely forget. Yeah. You know, it seems like we do forget our, you know, everyday minds kind of forget that. But it, over time, you, I think, you learn to not forget. You learn, mm. you know, for a while it's, a, you know, kind of forget and then remember, forget and remember. And then at some point it, it kind of stops and you're just in the remembering, you know, you are, you are just 
your truth. You know, you're not forgetting the truth and having to come back to it. It's like a spiritual practice. It's, it's the same thing. You know, you meditate, 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 keep coming back to your good heart and your common sense and your, your sanity, your peace. And then at some point you start to realize, well, why am I giving up my sanity and my peace of mind? My open heartedness? Why don't I just stay there? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a, reaching a level of consciousness, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so what I was thinking about love conquering all when I was thinking about this podcast is that phrase that seems to be around at the moment that love is not a noun, it's a verb. It's what are you doing? So if you're doing the work of love that we're talking about, ultimately it does conquer all. Yeah, or we surrender everything to it. Yes. Um, I don't think, you know, love is kind of uh, uh, violent like that in a way. Yes. You know, it's like, it's just, it's just they're waiting, you know? Yes. But like, it, in fact, who and what you are already is love. Yes. It's just the remembering who and what you really are and surrendering everything that keeps you separate from what you are. It's so so true. It's perhaps then the opposite of what I was saying about doing the work. It's undoing the defense mechanisms and releasing those defense mechanisms and to just be yeah. in the love. That's right. Because actually... Yes, at one level, love is a verb. You can act with love and, you know, and certainly you can act with violence and cruelty too. And it is important to have acts of love, no doubt. That's, you know, those are like what the Gottmans would call, you know, kind of deposits in the joint count. Yes. <laughs> the, the marital account, energetic account. But again, you know, you can be doing what on the outside look like acts of love but be pissed off on the yeah, inside exactly. and being kind of a martyr about it sort of thing. Yeah. And look at that better than just, you know, being angry and being a complete jerk. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it's a good idea to be honest, you know, like a part of me is feeling hurt or rejected and I still want to be loving and kind to you. So mm. I think the, the deeper work, like you were just alluding to, is that I'm wanting to remember what I am which, which is not really a noun, it's a, it's a way of being. Yes. And it's more like realizing as a fish, I'm not just a fish, I'm also the water that I'm swimming in. There's mm. no separation between me and the water, or I'm a wave in the ocean, you know, I, I am the ocean, I'm not just the wave. So, and that is a deep relaxing relaxation of trying, and what can even be trying to be loving. So even trying to be loving can actually block being loving. Yes, and it's that not doing, which is what meditation is, of course, on some level, and being, which mm. humans seem to be, unless they're actively meditating and actively becoming more conscious, really struggling with the being parts of themselves, as you say, being in nature, being at one with nature, is that disappearing well, it seems to be going both ways. <laughs> I mean, you, you can say if you go back to, uh, you know, you, or probably you still go to some little villages in the Amazon or places like that, people are just living in being, you know, mm. they're at one nat with nature more or less, and they spend most of their day just being, you know, yeah. very little planning and strategizing and worrying and stressing and, you know, but it seems like, you know, part of becoming civilized call it that involves losing touch with that being yes but i do see nowadays maybe you know on one hand there's people busier than ever consuming more than ever going yeah. like crazy you know like to avoid being at all costs mm. 
But on the other hand, there is more and more people that are going to yoga classes and meditation and, uh, you know, watching Eckhart Tolle on Oprah Winfrey, (laughs) things like that, you know, like, wow, Eckhart's gone mainstream. And that's like 15 years ago. True. And there is this whole process of awakening that's happening like never before, never, you know, when I was, I was in a Santa Cruz in the 1970s and this was really progressive and, you know, the kind of cutting age of East meets West, (laughs) but it was a really isolated pocket in the world where that was happening. And now Catherine, my wife, she's uh, teaching mindfulness and gratitude practices and stuff at Roche Pharmaceuticals. Oh, wow. (laughs) And they're really appreciating her weekly kind of podcast thing she's doing for the whole company and uh, more and more people coming online. And even the company itself is drawing on, I don't know you know about spiral dynamics, but... um, No, what's that? Well, Don Beck and Claire Graves looked at this kind of levels of human development that are kind of go right from like caveman consciousness right up to, you know, like enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And there's, I won't go into all the details, but there's all these like different levels of development that we're going through. And um, Ken Wilbert, you know, Ken Wilbert? Oh, yes. It's very much in line with his levels of development where he looks across like all different psychological and spiritual traditions and say, well, what, you know, people are, moving up levels and people do seem to gain greater awareness and greater inclusiveness Mm -hmm. and and self-responsibility and transcendence of, you know, kind of old me against you kind of, you know, combative sorts of ways of being in the world. You know, if you look around the world, there's plenty of even warlord sort of consciousness still in the world. Oh, yes. Uh, Tribalism, you know, it's kind of reasserting itself Mm. even in modern society. And then you have people who are very, you know, recognizing, you know, that actually there is an objective reality. Science does, you know, kind of count for something. And that not only that, uh, another level, that of the kind of ecological movement that, wow, you know, we're actually part of the earth, you know, that we don't own the earth. It's not ours to use as we wish that we actually have to live in harmony with that. So there's this, and it seems as people wake up, they do progress in their kind of understanding of the world and how they operate. Can't get away with, you know, being Vikings like (laughs) my ancestors. I just couldn't somehow bring myself to rape, pillage, and plunder. Like, you know, (laughs) my ancestors were really joyfully doing and, you know, thought they could be rewarded in Valhalla and be able to do that for eternity, you know? So I don't, I'm not really drawn to that. (laughs) (laughs) Some people are, it would appear, less and less in the world, but there are people that are still of that mindset. Yeah. So So what do you find saddening or frustrating about your work with couples? I'm not really that good at being that sad and frustrated, I have to say. Uh, probably the main thing would be that um, people get started and, you, and the door opens a bit and they see that, you know, more is possible and then they get scared and they drop out yeah. of therapy. And that's okay because, you know, what I've also found is often they'll call me up like a year or two later, <laughs> six yes. months down the track and they'll be like, Oh, do you remember me? We came, we came in for, you know, two sessions and we thought we were good. <laughs> uh-huh. 
<laughs> we thought we were doing okay, you know. Yeah. And we realized there's a bit more there that we probably need to work on. And then that's very satisfying, you know. That, yeah. Um, I, I really accept that uh, everybody seems to have their own curriculum, their own way that they evolve and develop as human beings. And um, I guess I used to kind of have more worries and concerns or upsets and disappointments and frustrations about that, but I also kind of accept that, you know, everybody has their own timing. Absolutely. We have to accept that because there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, the sa- in the same way, I used to I used to be just astounded when I'd see couples that were quite compatible just throw away their marriages. And even when children were at stake, it just, just astounded me. And these days I think, well, I, I'm becoming a fatalist that if they're not meant to be together anymore, they're not going to be together. Yeah, I, I have been of that, although I have a pretty fierce tendency if people have kids to do my best to really, you know, asking questions like, what are you going to tell your kids yeah. when they're old enough to tell them was the reason that you gave up on your marriage? Oh, definitely. I, I say to them, hand on heart, can you say to your child that you did everything to keep your family exactly. together? That's right. You know, because, you know, when it comes down to it, you might, you know, be happy with someone else mm-hmm. and move on, but your kids, your kids, and I, and I know this because I've done it with my kids because I did get divorced, is, you know, my daughter, when she's at my more recent wedding, she says, you know, Dad, I'm really happy for you, but I'm really sad that you're not with Mom. Oh. I'm really sad, you know, and there are times where I still really, I'm so sad that I can't go home and see Mom and Dad yeah. together. It's, and it's, look, at her Mom and I are close, and we, you know, really get along well, and she gets along well with my new wife and you know we're all we do our best to be a happy family and all that but it's still not safe it's some kind of biological imperative isn't it to have your parents together in in your own mind it's what what is it about that i don't know it's just yeah i think you're right it's just wired into us Mm. we're i think when we have children we're you know kind of wired to stay bonded for life or live in a tribal you know kind of community where you're all still living within the same compound anyway. Yes. <laughs> you know, mom and dad aren't at war and, li- you know, living across town and don't want to talk to one another. Look at, I, I, I did get divorced, but I did wait. To, I did manage to keep my marriage going, which is very difficult. Mm. Um, my kid's mom, we, you know, she got pregnant. We knew each other for three weeks when I was a traveler. You know, <laughs> we didn't get... We never had a honeymoon. <laughs> we never, we're straight into, you know, having kids right away. And we really worked through a lot. It's when my daughter was just shy of her 18th birthday. But I tell you, I, 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 I just couldn't bear the thought of not waking up in the same house as my children, yes. you know, or the thought that they would have to not have me there whenever they needed me. And so I, I even though I had a very, you know, challenging marriage, um, I did. I, I can honestly say, you know, I really gave it my best shot. Yes. And I, I got, you know, we got through them raising our kids into adults and having a, you know, beautiful, intact family. It's a better marriage than most people, but I have very high standards and I wanted <laughs> yeah. something even better before I um, got too old or died. And, you know, I kind of put it to my 
put it to my wife, you know, like, you know, I really want to do more work. I really want to have something better. And I just had to finally be true. And this is, I still think is the work I do with couples. You know, at some point you have to think, well, be your best self, be true to yourself, do everything you can to be your best self. But if your partner is actually not really pulling their fair share of the weight or not doing the work, at some point you do have to kind of say, if you can't do this better, I really am going to have to leave. Now, that can really light the fire under your partner. Yes. You know, bum sometimes. And it has to be done. They have to, oh, gee, I have to choose between my bad habits and my ego defenses and, you know, and being a pain in the ass and lose my marriage yep. or grow, evolve, do some healing and keep my marriage. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, egos don't necessarily want to let go of what they perceive as their security. But that sometimes is what it takes for people to go, oh, oh, in that case, yeah, I guess maybe I do need to face the truth and, and look at my wounding and, and my addictions and my avoidances and things. And not just for my sake, but for my children's sake, evolve yeah. and grow in ways my parents never did. And maybe what seemed to be good enough for me with my parents, maybe that isn't good enough for my children. Maybe they deserve something better. True. And what an opportunity when one partner does put that to the other partner. That's not always how people see it, but (laughs) it is really a gift. Yeah. Really getting down to it. Yeah. Like, I know you're capable of better than this. I know there's more love in your heart than you're allowing yourself to experience. Yeah. And as you alluded earlier on about the compromising that we have to do in relationships versus compromising our integrity, you're really talking about your integrity was compromised, I think. Yeah, that's right. At some point, you have to be true to your own conscience. Yeah. And what you know is you have to do. Now, it's interesting because I, when I did follow my heart and my truth and I left my marriage, at some point, I just, in my heart, I just knew I had. For my own growth and evolution, uh, kids have grown up, and oh, okay, if you can't go on that journey with me, yeah, go on my own. So, as psychologists, what are some of the ways that we help relationships and things that we can offer for people? Well, first of all, it's great that you know you're doing relationship work. I think it's a lot of psychologists that aren't doing that much marriage and relationship therapy. Well, um, it's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work, and, and it doesn't respond well to manualized therapy. No, no. <laughs> you know, you, you can't just go through a series of CBT kind of uh, <laughs> techniques and stuff, you know, focus psychological solutions, you know, <laughs> and get really to the heart of the matter. It's good to, um, of course, have those tools and teach people how to use all of that sort of stuff. But it does require, um, it requires what, Good marriages require, which is what David Schnarch refers to as differentiation or the ability to remain true to yourself while being in close proximity, emotional proximity with somebody or somebody's that you care about. So, uh, you know, as a, as a professional relationship counselor, it, it's really, you know, and this happens to novices, you know, therapists a lot. You're in a room with a couple, you know, a couple who's really going at it, really (laughs) in a lot of suffering. It's so easy to get buttons pushed, to overwhelm, want to, you know, take sides, you know, want to, you know, scold somebody, wanting to, uh, you know, quit and like leave the room or 
you know, any other things. I mean, I haven't had that in a long time, but I still feel some of the slight impulses. So to be able to hold on to your own emotional equilibrium, keep your heart and mind open to both people, both a couple, and still be in tune with yourself, grounded in your own being, you know, like Mm. grounded in your own common sense and good heart, I like to say. That's not easy. No. That takes, you know, really good training and experience and, you know, development as a human being that you don't get at uni, you know. You've got to seek that out, you know, because you're called to that, I think. I mean, I have other psychologists that refer to me because I work with couples. You know, and they oh, I just don't do couples too hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and often when we're, t- we're working with couples, the couple might split or there's a conflict of interest. And in many of those cases, I've referred one of the people to you. And sometimes I have to work with them separately. So couple counselling can evolve, can't it? Yeah, it can. And it you know, can obviously evolve into divorce counselling or mm. that can be the case or individual therapy because sometimes, yeah, it just appears that one partner really wants to do the work and the other one is like, mm, no, I'm, you know, for whatever reason, they don't want to, they're not ready or they, yeah, maybe, maybe will never want to, you know, and yeah, so it can, you know, kind of change that way. Sometimes you, couples need to split up, sorry, or kind of separate without splitting up completely. Mm. And then, sometimes doing some individual work on their own. And sometimes I'll see both people individually, you know, as a note with the idea that they're going to come back together. Or sometimes, like you say, have to refer them someone else to do the individual work so they can keep the couple's therapy clean, I guess. Uh, yeah. You know, from- yeah, sometimes it's like the relationship looks like it's going to break. I often see relationships as rubber bands that some of them, they just flex and flex and you think, oh, I don't know whether this. And then, as you say, someone will be offered an, an ultimatum that, you know, I'm not, not going to continue this marriage unless you do something about raising your consciousness and working on your family of origin issues. And that person caves because they do want the marriage. And then the relationships, you know coming back into a, a more sort of relaxed state and that person is working on themselves finally and, you, mm. you know, mm. they may have appeared for years as if they were never going to because they were so brittle and defensive and they reach a certain point where perhaps the child, their first child is of a certain age and they realise that, as you felt, I don't want to not be with my children growing up. I want to be with them and be a family. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for sure. People stay together for different reasons, don't they? I remember when my book was launched by Relationships Australia's CEO, she said the research all boils down to this simple statement, if you want your marriage, you'll have it because you'll do whatever it takes. And like you said of your first marriage, you had it because you wanted it enough for your children and to be with your children. So you did whatever it took for that incentive. I think there's an important distinction about that. And I try to make this with couples, you know, you don't want to stay together just for the kids sake. Like, and like, and people do this and they like mm. live separately under the same roof and hate each other for 10 years and not talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, go tell your mother to, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, to pay the bill or something. And, you know, that's not a good idea. I, what I tell people is you want to do everything in your power to have a good enough. It's not, it may not be great, good enough marriage, Mm. 
you know, for your kids and give it your best shot for yourself and your kids, for your family as a whole. You know, if, you know, at some point, you know, it, it just, whatever you're doing, you know, your partner's an alcoholic or Flanver, you know, or just, you know, uh, shut down in trauma and refusing to do anything, you know, at some point, yeah, you might have to give them an ultimatum and you may have to, you know, choose otherwise because also it's even better for your kids to kind of say, hey, there's one sane person here. Yes who's doing everything they can to be honest and be responsible and just to kind of lower your standards to stay together, you know, so you're both dysfunctionally, you know, carrying on is that that's not a good thing. You know? So there are reasons to divorce and separate, you know. Oh, and to offer a new role model for children as well of a healthier relationship is yeah. sometimes, you know, the flip side or the positive from divorce. That's right. Because then at least on one side, half of the family, you see someone who's being honest and mm. loving and taking responsibility and working through issues, uh, you know, and, you know, and not being an addict or whatever, you know, and think, oh, yeah, it's better to have one doing that well and maybe even meeting someone else and, role modeling a healthy relationship than to just yeah hang in there being miserable for decades you know a decade or something yeah and eric what's your thoughts on this slow dating trend that seems to be emerging particularly since the pandemic that i've been trying to promote for years anyway because i believe that if you can have a slow burn of a relationship in the beginning that old-fashioned courtship kind of process seems to be where we can be more conscious mindful learn strategies recognize wounds are being triggered are going to be triggered what we're going to do about this be differentiated as you're saying and i don't know pick the warning signs as well because course all relationships have problems it's the lack of discerning the problems and managing them that seems to be the problem what what do you make of that slow dating trend well i think it's fantastic um i think the big challenge is that people are kind of dissociated from their emotional bodies and in particular dissociated from the effects of having sex with another person has on them yeah there's a reason why in the olden days, you know, they said that you, um, you know, you shouldn't have sex with someone unless you were married. And that's probably going to, I, I think that's going too far, especially in the age of birth control. Mm. But of course, in pre the age of birth control, if you had sex with someone, you could have a baby, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, which then meant, you know, you were bound to them for life. Yep. And, and, and you had responsibilities in this, and it shouldn't be taken lightly. Now, I, I think because of birth control, people have been able to kind of almost divorce themselves from that fact that, you know, sex could lead to children. But putting that aside, if you're really paying attention to how your heart feels when you're going, you know, and you're starting, when you're meeting someone, you can't have sex with them, really, until your heart's ready, if you're mm. respecting your heart. Yep. But people put their hearts aside saying, well, I see if the sex is good. Yeah. <laughs> my, heart, my heart's not really in it. It'll just be kind of for recreation. <laughs> yeah, or because I'm horny, yeah. you know, and I, want, I need a release or something. I need to, my ego needs a little polishing up to make sure I'm still attractive to the opposite sex. And all these are not good reasons. No. You know, it's their ego reasons, their insecure reasons, their you know detached from your own heart reasons. 
I, I did this with Catherine. I was like, she was really ready to have sex with me. And I'm like, I'm not ready. Uh, I, I, I'm happy to go to bed with you and cuddle, but I'm not going to take off Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel ready. <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 my heart's not ready for that. And I, 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 it changes everything. Yep. If, unless you're in touch with yourself, if you're in tune with your body and your heart, you know that. So the real issue is, you know, in a way, it's kind of how do you do slow living? <laughs> you know, like how do you slow down enough, get out of your own head and into your own body and into your own heart? So you're actually paying attention to what feels honorable, respectful, loving, and, and actually what you need in every moment. Exactly. And, and if you're paying attention to what you need, getting those needs met moment to moment, you know, more like slow dating and like you're talking about, then it can potentially lead you to something really beautiful because it's a kind of like a blooming of a flower. Yes. Rather than saying, oh, I just want the flower to open up. Well, that's like having sex on the first date. Well, let's just pull the petals of the rosebud right wide open so we can get, you know, an open flower. Yeah. And <laughs> Rather people... than letting the flower just open in its own time. Exactly. And for people who can't do that, they can always separate dating from having sex you know, two different processes with different people. You know, why not have sex with someone you're not planning to have a relationship with, who you wouldn't have a relationship with, and then do the slow dating with people that you would want a relationship with? Yeah, although, <laughs> I mean, I, certainly there, there's a logic to that, and, and I know a lot of people, you know, kind of would subscribe to that and maybe even do that. But then if you're really, I think if you're really paying attention What's it like to have sex with someone, you know, really, that you don't want to have an emotional, it doesn't have to be a relationship that lasts, it doesn't have to be a, a, a marriage that lasts a lifetime, but it is a relationship, you know, and what is it like to have sex that you're leaving your heart out of? Exactly. I mean, I've had some, you know, short relationships, but even those ones, I mean, the sex isn't very good if my heart's not in it. No. You know, I mean, generally, just having sex with someone like that, half the time, it's probably better just to have masturbation. Mm. Doesn't have all the complications. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, quite often what happens, people come out, they think, oh, we're just having sex. And, oh, you know, we're not going to have a relationship. But then you have sex enough and you're, the bond starts to form. Yes. The emotions start to activate. People start to get attached. And unless you're really cold-hearted and detached, you know, and often that will happen. One person will start to get attached. Yes. Because, and it can be really painful. And people have so much trauma around that, I find. That's, and it's hard for them to open up to a real relationship. Yes. they're so busy with coping with not being upset about being used sexually while I was using you sexually on Tinder. And blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like after like years of that, you think, whoa, why, did, why, you know, why can't we really open up and bond? And, you know, and, find a lasting relationship. I know. It's so many times women of particularly millennial generation have said, well, it's all fair these days, you know, we're and androgynous, we're equal now, so I can chase him as much as he can chase me. I can have sex with whoever I want. I can be on Tinder. And, and then, as you say, they're shocked if and when they do get attached or insecure because he's not attached, that it actually is very painful. Yeah. It's the whole kind of ignorance and kind of illusion that we can just 
make these decisions kind of dissociated from our bodies and our heart because we can't, you know, we go, oh, it's, it's, almost, it's a sort of pornification of mm. sex and the relationships, you know, like, and it's, it's probably coincided a lot with this, you know, mass exposure to pornography and, you know, and that this kind of dissociation of sex and the heart. And of course, dating sites, Tinder and Bumble and all of those, Grinder. Yeah. And yeah, and fair enough, everybody gets to do what they want. And human beings, mm. you know, usually have to learn things the hard way. Yep. You know, right? You know, and so maybe, you know, I, except this is a phase that human beings you know, have to go through. They think, okay, well, let's just see what happens when we have, and have casual sex as much as you want. How satisfying is that really? Like, how, how many Tinder dates do you really want to go on? <laughs> and does I think people get burned out on it eventually if they're you know got half a heart and half a brain that's working. But then there, I, my experience is there's um, caring trauma. You can also you know there's evidence now to show that women can and men I think too can carry the DNA material of people they've had sex with. Have you heard this research? Wow, no. And of course, with that can also be emotional baggage. Yeah. We know we that gets passed on through DNA. Mm. And as hypnotherapists, you and I know about the mind-body link. Yeah. And family constellations kind of show this even better, you know, because one of the things with constellations is that becomes really apparent is that pretty much anybody you've had sex with is in your field. Wow. Tell to us very degrees. Well, you become part of their family field, their relational field, their um Morphic field, as Rupert Sheldrake says. So, you know, it goes back to also what Gregory Bateson said, you know, the mind is imminent. We are happening within mind. Mind isn't happening within us. Yeah. You know? We, our humanness is unfolding within the, the self-organizing field of infinite possibilities, you know, but that does have patterns, you know, there's, and we carry our field around us. And then not only that, whatever is un, especially what's unhealed or unresolved in our fields, we have this tendency to draw people in to represent people who we have unresolved issues with. You know, this is how, of course, we also see this in psychotherapy where we get into transference and counter-transference mm-hmm. relationships with clients and all of a sudden we kind of feel ourselves feeling extra protective or, or pissed yes. off or something at our clients is kind of counter-transference reactions and you realize, oh, right, there's something in them yes. that's inviting me to be their critical parent. Yes. And if you're a good therapist, you just, you just note that, you know, <laughs> you, or you, you talk about that with them and who could that, you know, you know, or how, you know, you might as well have a relationship with your father, like, you know, yes. because realize I'm picking up on the father, the unresolved father issues. With family constellations, we use that tendency to tap into that field of energy and information that we carry around with us to bring into consciousness what's unhealed and unresolved so that it can be healed and resolved. And we don't keep repeating the same relational patterns over and over again. It's very powerful work, family constellations. It is. And what happens with people, you know, especially if we've had, you know, um, uh, unsatisfactory sexual relationships with them, maybe because we're just been tindering away, you know, is that there's all the emotional stuff that people haven't addressed because of those sexual interactions. Mm. 
that of course a lot of those were had are kind of replicating and probably something that happened with their mother or father too where they weren't really available and they're not really used to having you know a good bonding so it's almost like those dating sites make it possible just to have a lot of non-bonding repetitions of your own wounding yes but on top of that it's like it's like the trauma in general you have it was complex trauma. You have, let's say, childhood trauma, but then you have, you know, these other traumas right up through the years that are just mirrors of the original trauma. They're mm-hmm. stacked on top of one another, and that you carry that trauma in your field, and you will attract more trauma to you or more of the same. Yes. Because, like Freud says, the repetition compulsion keep repeating until you learn, till you heal that wound. And so <laughs> you got, you know, the original, and then you got this, all these little kind of like parasites in your you know, energy field, all these relationships that you hooked up with, thinking that there's nothing you know, to it. Because in mm. your mind, the, the, the conscious mind can block out pretty much anything it wants to. It's got a mindset on it, especially with plenty of distractions and substances available to help with that, as opposed to being really open, honest, and clear about, oh, what do I need to be really present to show up to a truly loving and intimate partnership and, and, and bond and deeply and to trust and to, you know, not have to be defended, to drop all of my defense, to be truly vulnerable and, you know, held and to hold you and to, be, to meet and, you know, egolessly. And, oh, like, that, that's what we were talking about earlier. That's not an easy thing. And to kind of, you know, having multiple partners is a really poor substitute for that. And I really believe it makes it harder for people to have that deep bond. They're so conditioned to thinking, well, this is all I can really have. Yes, and perhaps all there really is. But you've no doubt inspired so many people with your descriptions and your experiences of this, of a deeper, intimate relationship. I hope so. <laughs> That's why I do the work. <laughs> That's why you do the work. Is there anything else we need to talk about before we give your website? Anything you'd like to promote? Well, I'm not doing many workshops because I'm really not that keen on doing online Zoom workshops, although I'm considering doing something like that one of these days just because that all it seems that I can do. But regularly, normally I run workshops and family constellations and meditation Enneagram, um, Enneagram is a system of nine personality types, which are basic nine ego types. And the more we can understand our ego and other people's egos, the more we can be free of those. Because what you can be aware of, realize is not you. And you can start to you know, realize our deeper spiritual nature, who we are. We're not busy being who we've been brought up to be or who we mistakenly thought we were. <laughs> you know, realize more full potential. I also do wild meditation retreats some from one day up till four days where I take people out into the bush and have different kind of meditative and experiences as well as being, you know, individual and family and marriage therapist using a whole lot of different modalities in my practice in DY. Wonderful. And your website? I got two websites. Those who are really interested in relationships as we've been talking about today. It's called the Healing Relationship Center. At healingrelationshipcenters.com. And I also have another website. It's called essentialwholeness.com.au. And that's really more about 
the Enneagram and meditation and kind of spiritual awakening sort of work that I'm doing with people. And people can get your books from each website? You can contact me and get yeah, the books through there or certain likes they can get it online, all your major online book outlets. Thank you so much, Eric, for enlightening us today about relationships. And thank you for having me on this show. Please note any references to people, stories or scenarios mentioned in this podcast are an amalgamation of experiences. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes.